Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to episode 160 of the MyFit Podcast. This week on the show, I bring back my coach, Kyle Ruth. Kyle has been coaching elite level CrossFit athletes for several years and has been an integral part of training think tanks growth. Kyle has also competed in national levels in swimming as well as CrossFit at the 2021 CrossFit Games as a team member of training think tank. Some of the topics we got into today were first, what were the lessons that he learned from the 2022 CrossFit Open? Then what does it mean to define your own success? After that, we talked about how do you help clients to celebrate their wins and reflect back on their progress? Then we talked about how to get athletes to push to their absolute limits in training so then they can do it on the competition floor. And then the meat of our conversation was talking about overcoming and navigating injuries in CrossFit. What are the mindset shifts that need to happen in order to heal? What's the difference between soreness, tweaks, and injuries? And what are some go-to prehab and rehab exercises to help decrease the chance of injury? If you guys are a CrossFit competitor, coach, or just a general enthusiast who loves the sport, this episode and conversation is definitely for you. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a rating and review as that helps my show grow tremendously. Thank you guys all for the continued support. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my coach, Kyle Ruth. Let's go. Kyle Ruth, my coach. Welcome back to the MyFit Podcast for round two, man. Hello. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to, uh, to dig into our conversation. We already started digging into topics before, before we started recording, so I'm glad you hit the record button when we did. Yeah, man. <laughs> That's classic us. Um, so I had you on the show. Um, I think it was kind of over COVID time. That's just a big time of life. So we might as well just throw everything in that time. And we talked about the art of program design. And then that uh, podcast is also reposted on the Training Think Tank channel. That was a fun conversation. So if you guys enjoy what we talk about today, you want to hear more about program design, go back to that. But today we're going to talk a little bit about um, injuries and kind of what's been new in Kyle's life. We're also going to talk about some of the ins and outs of the mindset pieces of coaching and also being an athlete. So what I want to do today, Kyle, is kind of take this conversation and these answers from an athlete standpoint which you are, and then also a coaching standpoint, which you are as well. And that's a lot of my listeners. So if we can kind of take that sort of approach, I think there'll be a lot of value for our listeners. And, and uh, you, go yeah, ahead and preface by saying I am a washed up master's <laughs> athlete, not, <laughs> can we just go that direction? So that I, I can't agree that. with that, man. You're a stud. You're, you're, you're a stud and you just had a great uh, showing at, at Wadapalooza. And so I can't agree with the washed up comment, but that those, those yeah. can be your words. <laughs> I appreciate that, DJ. <laughs> Absolutely. So the CrossFit Open just got over 2022. Uh, we just had a three-week open and the leaderboard is officially closed today. I'm curious from a coach and also an athlete standpoint, Kyle, what did you learn 
from this year's open. We have two years of data with the new setup of being a three-week open versus five. We have some new ownership. We're starting to get comfortable in kind of this new setting. What did you learn as an athlete and a coach this year? And how will that shape you into the athlete coach going into 2023? Well, I think first off, um, as a coach, one of the things that has happened over the last year is or you know, with, with this new format is people get lulled into the sense that the open doesn't matter. And I think anybody who approached the open with the mindset of the open doesn't matter, didn't perform the way that they wanted to in the open. And they may have carried that sense of like, Hey, this doesn't matter into the open. But after they got done with the first workout, they probably were pretty disappointed with their effort because anytime you, you say, Hey, this doesn't matter. You're going to give a training effort and not a competition effort. And so I think one of the things that, that I was challenged to do for my athletes that really, you know, afterward, they were like, oh man, that performance was not me. Like, that's not who I am as a competitor. And I said, instead of thinking about this as something that doesn't matter, you, you need to frame the open as something that you're using to get better. It's a tune-up for quarterfinals. So anybody who's, you know, and, and, you know, I don't know how, you know, what level your podcast audience competes at, but most of the people I work with are quarterfinals or semifinals level athletes or masters, you know, high level age, age group qualifier or games level athletes. So for everybody that I coach, the open is something where it's just like a stepping stone to the next thing that they're all focused on. Um, but for, for the vast majority of them, they approach it like it didn't matter in the first week. And I'm like, you have to reframe this. We have to do some cognitive reframing because this does matter. This is your tune up. You have to use this as a tool to prepare you for the next stage. And week two went much better for everyone as a result of that. So I think that's the first piece is the, the mental or psychological approach to the open has changed from the past because the open used to be high pressure. You weren't top 20, you weren't going to the games, that kind of deal, right? If you weren't top 20 in your region, you weren't going to regionals. It was high pressure in the past. And the open is no longer high pressure, but now it's still a tool that you have to use effectively. It's like something that you have in your arsenal that you've got to use. I think that's number one. Number two, I think this year showed us very clearly that we are in a new era of the sport with the programming changes. Um, I, I think there's no way that it, you know, two weeks ago, you could have said, Kyle, there's only going to be three scores and that's, what's going to determine who goes to quarterfinals. And there's not going to be a heavy barbell test, you know, as part of that filter that moves people on, there will be a high skill gymnastics piece, right? The bar muscle up, but there won't be a heavy barbell component before people move on. I would have been like, no way. CrossFit won't do that. Well, they sure as shit did. <laughs> and here we are moving into the next stage. So I think the, the lesson we're drawing from an end of one year, right? But the lesson that I'm taking away from this is just that we should expect basic CrossFit in the open. But I don't know what that means for the next stage. I can speculate all I want, right? But my speculation at this point isn't based on data or history or experience because I now am in the same boat as every other coach in the whole sport. So all my years of experience predicting based on Dave Castro has now been thrown out the window because we now have this entirely new setup for the sport. So I think that's the other, the other big takeaway. So mindset shift, I'm going to change the way I coach people going into the open. And then, well, now we know nothing. We know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> so what about the people that are in that? So top 10%, we know, go to the next yeah. stage. What are your thoughts on the people that are riding that line 
And what sort of advice would you have for them going into next year, knowing that the mental approach that this matters, and also it's a new era, and we know that's more basic CrossFit. Is there anything that you, any advice you'd give to the people that are riding that line? Maybe they're 12% this year. What, what should they focus on? Well, okay. So years past when there were five open workouts and people wanted to maximize their performance in the open, we knew skills like ring muscle-ups, bar muscle-ups, handstand walking, handstand push-ups were going to be huge factors in your score. They're the kind of thing that if you had one muscle-up or you had that heavy clean or you were able to snatch heavy, that it was going to guarantee like thousands of places better. But if the open tests are going to be similar to the way they were this year with wall walks and dumbbell snatches, double unders, deadlifts, burpees, you know, a workout like the, the final workout, 20.3, 20. man, it's not 2020 anymore, <laughs> 22.3, um, you know, where it's like you just finally get into the hard stuff, the complex stuff at the very end of it. Um, you have to prioritize basic CrossFit way more than you used to. If you're someone that's on that bubble, what used to be, if you were someone on a bubble, you prioritize those keystone skills, the like, you know, the things that when I say keystone skill, I mean, ring muscle up, strict handstand, push up, handstand, walking, uh, double unders would probably fall into that category. Like the things that basically set you apart in workouts, but they may not ever be tested in the open again. Right. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, then rather than focusing on those keystone skills, you need to be focused on you know, your basic, what we would now, now I would classify what we saw as open style CrossFit mm -hmm. because those keystone skills may not get tested. And if, if your goal is to move from top 12% to top 10% to unlock that door, you know, with those keystone skills, to basically get into quarterfinals. Well, that's really what you want to do. Now, if you want to maximize your performance in quarterfinals, completely different story, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think is kind of a testament to the fact that our sport has changed and it's changed dramatically where it used to be, you had to have all those skills to make it to regionals or to make it to a sanctional. And now you don't have to have those skills to make it to quarterfinals where they're going to be tested. So yeah, it's, if you're top 12%, if you're 12% and you, you don't have the quarterfinals level skills, then maybe what you should do is spend half your season building those skills and then the half your season leading into the open, uh, just building basic CrossFit capacity. Awesome. That's my, my two cents. Very cool. Tell me what it means to define your success. You had a presentation on this at the Training Think Tank camp. I'd love to hear more about it. Okay. So one of the things I think uh, that people get lulled into, and I think this is relevant with the open. That's why I gave the, the talk before, before the open. Um, is they get lulled into this sense that like your performance in the, the sport of CrossFit or like defined by the CrossFit leaderboard is what defines your success. But the tests are, we're not going to call them random because they're not random, but the tests are not necessarily reflective of what you've spent your time working on. And so if you've spent your time over the last year working on, let's say those keystone skills, handstand walking, ring muscle ups, legless rope climbs, rope climbs, GHD sit-ups, the things that you know, now we're going to see in, in quarterfinals, but you didn't spend the year uh, working on, you know, CrossFit capacity, right? Bar facing burpee, deadlift, light hinging, that type of stuff. Um, that's okay. The open probably isn't very reflective of the work that you've done this past year, but you need to be able to define what success is for you. And it doesn't have to be defined by the leaderboard. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I gave the example during, the, during my talk that success for me for this open was going to be defined by 
getting my open workouts right the first time, meaning I, you know, I strategized correctly. My mental approach was in the right place. I felt like I gave full effort afterward. Um, and I didn't feel like I needed to repeat the workout afterwards. So that would be one element of success. And then another element is to make sure I qualify for the age group qualifier this year, um, which uh, granted I did. Um, I don't think that was a, a huge challenge for me given my current level of fitness, but um, you know, those were my two, my two elements of success, get the workouts right, you know, make sure that I leave everything that I wanted to leave out there. Um, not make mistakes and have to repeat workouts. I had to repeat a workout in the 2021 open because my hand kept leaving the line before both feet were on the wall. So like I wanted to make sure I didn't make those types of mistakes. And, you know, that's how I define success in the open. Now it's not how I define success for my season, but I think before you go into any competitive endeavor, you need to define exactly what is success for you. You know, you mentioned that I, I won Wadapalooza. I defined success going into Wadapalooza not by winning, but by making sure that I executed my game plan on every single workout because I've competed enough to know that if I execute and don't make mistakes, sometimes you win. Sometimes you don't. But if you don't make mistakes, it's more than likely the people you're competing with are going to make mistakes. And there's like one thing you can say, well, you can say a lot about Matt Frazier, but there's one thing you can definitely say about watching Frazier as a competitor is that he tended to not really make mistakes in workouts and he would beat, he would beat people. Yeah. Granted, because he was fitter too, but he would create these huge point gaps with people because he would execute his workouts extremely well with very minimal mistakes. And everyone else seemed to, you know, have a hiccup here, a mistake there, you know, overpaced, underpaced. And the result is he just continued to get that point spread to get, be bigger and bigger and bigger every year. So I think that's really what it came down to. A lot of that talk, there were a lot of other components to that talk, but um, the big one was, you know, anytime you're going into a competitive endeavor or something where you're going to be challenged, right? You need to define what success is for you. And that doesn't have to be defined externally. I think you're more successful when you define what that is internally. You're more likely to achieve external success when you focus on your own execution. And that's really what the, the gist of the talk was about. That's gold, man. And the define your success, what I hear, Kyle, is that it's your success. This is about you. It's not about the competitors around you. And CrossFit's such a unique sport where you can't really play defense, right? Everybody has their own lane. You're doing your own thing. It's not like basketball where I can kind of you know affect both sides of the court. It's really the only thing that you can control is you and your effort and your preparation. And I think where people get I don't know, uh, disappointed or discouraged is when they start, the moment they start to look at who's to their left, who's to their right, what did they get on their open workout? What does their social media look like? Once that stuff starts happening, that's when people start to change kind of their outlook on life. That's when depression starts to hit and they start to focus on everything external, not just in CrossFit. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true, especially in qualifiers. The one thing I will say, the caveat to that is when you're in a live competition, there's some value in being aware of who's around you, where they're at, what they're doing. And you can, in some ways, in a live competition, affect the people around you. A great example would be um, you know, going out really... like If you know that this is a wheelhouse workout for you, you can go out super hot 
and basically just break the rest of the field two rounds in and then not necessarily uh, have to bury yourself in, in a race. That's possible, but that's a rare event in CrossFit. It is rare that you're going to be in a position where you're you know, so far ahead of the field in, in a particular you know, workout, given its movement combinations, that you can do that. That would be the only caveat I would say to that. And that's also something I would say probably is reserved for really high level competitors. But yeah. You know, it's also it, it's a reality as well that you can impact other people, but you can't in a qualifier, right? The qualifier is like the ultimate you can only control yourself situation. And the more, like like you said, the more you know, like conscious effort you put into other people and other things and leaderboards and this, that, and the other, the less you're putting to yourself, which means the worse your performance is going to be. Mm-hmm. We're just going to talk about this later, but I think it lines up really well right now is this idea of having success. And something I've been running into a lot with my clients, Kyle, is this idea of we set out a goal for some of my clients and they reach it and I'm super excited for them. You know, We put all in this hard work and they PR this number and there's not a whole lot of excitement for them. And instead they have this thought of, yeah, it's great, but I'm still 30 pounds away from where I want to be. I'm still not there yet. And when you watch, you know, things like The Last Dance or documentaries of Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan, some of these, you know, really high achievers, they kind of have that same mentality of it's never good enough. Even Rich, like he doesn't celebrate any of his wins. He's, you know, back on the floor the next day. There's kind of this constant process of like, it's never good enough. And I'm trying to figure out as I'm mulling through this, I'm thinking about this a lot recently, is how do you find a balance between not being good enough, also celebrating your wins, enjoying what you do, yet staying motivated. It seems like there's a lot of things that a lot of buckets, and I'm also an athlete, so I get it too. But I also think now that I've been doing this for almost 10 years, that if you don't celebrate some of these wins, it could be a very long and dismal and unenjoying type career that you have. So with all that being said, as a coach, how do you help to celebrate wins with athletes, even though they're really stuck on, yeah, that's great, but I'm just not even where I want to be yet. Yeah, I think this is a challenge. And actually for me as a coach, I'm not sure that I necessarily do a good enough job of helping celebrate my my athletes, like many victories, like the milestones that are on their way. But I would say that the context people need to understand is that everything comes in stepping stones. And you're right, you're not there yet. You know, like you you added 15 pounds to your snatch, you added 10 pounds or five pounds to your back squat one RM, and it took you six months. You should probably celebrate that victory to some degree and have like a little pat yourself on the back moment and recognize that like you are in the process. You are, you know, taking those steps towards the end goal. But you also have to recognize that like it's a long process. And I think that having those little moments where you're like, you step back and reflect and think back to like, man, that was only a five pound PR. But if I think back to like three years ago, that's like a 25 pound PR in three years. Like that's pretty impressive. What, what can I expect to do over the next three years is just taking that moment to zoom out, look at it from that, you know, 15,000 or 50,000 foot view, and then zoom back in to the moment and keep taking the next step and the next step. Because that's really what this comes down to. I mean, I think part of what you're talking about is is like a process orientation versus outcome orientation. And people are, in general, stuck in outcome orientation. And the outcome they want is this, I want to be at this level competing 
And the process orientation, which is what you're focused on, what you're talking about is like, I added five pounds to my back squat. Now I only have 15 pounds more to add, right? But they're like, I have to add 15 pounds to achieve X. And that's process process orientation versus outcome orientation. And I think that kind of ties back into the, like you're saying, it ties back into defining your success. So like, Yes, you're, you may define your, your success externally, like qualifying for the, for the top 10% quarterfinals, but there are milestones or check marks or um, you know, stepping stones that you have to achieve in order to get there. And each time you achieve one of those, you should check it off. This kind of reminds me of my goal setting process. Like We had this sports psychologist come talk to our swim team when I was in high school. I, I, I swam at a pretty high level before uh, CrossFit. And we had this sports psychologist come in and up to that point, anytime someone had, had talked about goals, they had always just talked about like, set a goal. It should be a smart goal, you know? And so it was really easy. I was like, I want to win a state title and, oh, I can, you know, it's time bound. Cause I know when state championships are going to be, I'm going to write it down and I have other people to hold me accountable. So, you know, I have my accountability part is measurable. I had a pretty damn good idea of about what time I needed to swim in order because I swam the 53, I needed to swim at least like a 20.6 53 style if I wanted to do that. And so like I had all these things, but that doesn't give you a roadmap to success. Well, a sports psychologist came in and started talking to us. What they did is they broke it down into what I I didn't know that they were process goals at the time, Mm -hmm. but it was like, all right, what's your goal? What are the obstacles? Identify your top three obstacles for that goal. Write it down. All right. What are the three ways you're going to navigate through these obstacles? Right. And then it was like the, the next layer of it was um, what are the what are the three people that you have that support you on you know the three people that support you the most? How do they support you the most? And how can you leverage their support? So what it did is it created this. When you were done, you had an outline mm-hmm. and a roadmap for moving towards your goal. And lo and behold, I want a state title. Mm-hmm. So I'm in a 20.53, just a little bit faster than 20.6, but I can, I can guarantee you that that would not have happened if I didn't have that roadmap. Mm-hmm. No chance that that would have happened. Because as a seven, 16 or 7, I don't know how old I was, 16, 17-year-old, year old, I didn't have the skill set to navigate myself from where I was to where I wanted to be. I could daydream about it all day, but daydreaming about shit doesn't get you the thing that you want. You actually have to create a roadmap for that success and check off those little boxes each time you hit a checkpoint. Like for me, I broke it down. Like I had to be able to swim a a sub 10 second, 25 freestyle from a dive. If you can't do that, you're not going to swim a 20 point. Well, that was pretty clear what I needed to do. I needed to improve my start, my breakout, and all the components that led to a sub 10 second, 25 freestyle. So I went about, I talked to my coach. I was like, we need to work on these things because I can't swim a sub 10 second, 25. Well, then I swam a 9.6. I'm like, well, I'm fast enough now. Now I got to work on the second half, the turn and the, the way home. It was such a clear roadmap for success. And I think if, I think if people haven't gone through that process, which you know, this is probably reminding me, see, for people that's coming up on the end of their season pretty soon, I need to go back through this goal setting process and help people re-identify all of these things and create their roadmap. Something that pops in my head that's been helpful, I don't utilize it enough, is helping or help having clients look back instead of forward. So we're in this world where we're always looking at like, what's next? What's tomorrow? What's in the next few minutes? Where there's a lot of value in even scrolling back in your Instagram to a year or two ago and looking at some of those videos and being like, man, like, you know, at that time, 135 pound snatch was 
really hard. That was PR material. And I know you're only at 155 now, but look at, look at what it used to look like. And so sometimes there's a lot of value, Kyle, I think, in looking back and reviewing rather than always fixating on what's forward, what's next, uh, what do I got to do then, then? There's a lot of value in the athletic world of looking back. To that point, so I coached this really promising young athlete. His name's Brooks Merkel. He trains on site here. And at this point, he's like nine months into CrossFit. This is the second time he's qualified for quarterfinals um, and had some pretty, I mean, he beat me on two of the three open workouts. So like, that's how fast this kid's rate of progress has been. But strength is a, is a struggle. I mean, he's a, he's a 22-year-old with no strength background, um, has pretty good endurance background. And we had him do a workout on Saturday that had 185-pound snatches. And it was, it was one of the, the on-site workouts and had like AMRAP snatches at 185 at the end. And, and I think he got seven. And at first he was like, you know, it's not good enough. Cause he was doing it with Jake and Travis who got 27 or whatever. And I'm like, you're, you're right. It's not good enough right now. But when you started, you could not snatch 185 pounds. And that was nine months ago. And you did it seven times at the end of a snatch ladder. Like Think about where you were. Just a moment. Scroll back in your Instagram to those those snatches at 155 that you kept missing last summer. You know, in August of last year. Think about that. Could you imagine being in that position? And then, like, here we are, just a short time later. That rate of progress for you, you'd be that you'd be bummed because you were missing 285 snatches at the end of a metcon with that level of progress. And I I think that was a good dose of perspective for him just to reflect back for a moment. And it's like, the other thing is you have to be here. This is this, what I told him. I was like, you have to be right here in order to get to the next stage. Like you've got to be able to cycle these 185 snatches before we're cycling 205 snatches at the end of a Metcon. If you're not here first, you can't be at the next stage yet. And so oh, I, I think like that. yeah. that's, the, that's the other thing people got to realize is like, you're, you're at where you're at right now because that's the next step before, you know, the next milestone. So I love that. Cool. I want to transition just a little bit and talk about pushing limits. So candidly, I'll just be vulnerable here. Sometimes in my, sometimes throughout my career, I've had moments where I've done workouts and afterwards, you know, it's a good score. It's okay. Score. It's a great score. Whatever the score is, I kind of leave going, man, I know I had more in the tank and I'm, you know, I'm breathing, I'm walking away. Everything's fine. And I, I didn't really completely empty the tank like I've seen other people do. And some of the thoughts that I have in my head when I'm doing some of these workouts are don't blow up, hold back a little bit. This is 10 minutes long um, or this is 20 minutes long, whatever it may be. It's kind of almost like I put, I don't know, parameters on my speed because I'm afraid of what could happen when I blow up. And in my almost 10 year career, Kyle, I don't think I could count on my hand how many times I've blown up in a workout because I just don't let myself get there. I think a lot of it is the same too. When I do, when I do my lifting sessions, I never get to a point where I'm putting up crappy lifts and failing because I just don't believe in that sort of progress and that sort of training. And I I don't want to put myself in positions where I could fail. But what I'm learning now is being in the sport as long as I have is I think there are moments, I'm curious to hear your opinion on it. I think there are moments where you need to put yourself in certain positions for failure. And that may look very different from another person's training style. So I'm thinking about, for me, I have a hard time jumping up on the rings when my heart's beating really fast. I like to take at least 20 seconds is always my number. I always like to wait 20 seconds before jumping up on the rings. And I'm thinking yesterday as you had me, pro- you programmed these intervals for me, 
there's plenty of time for me to jump up to these rings right now. I could do it right now. Why not just jump up right now? Why do you have to wait 20 why not, seconds? Why not jump up and find out? Why don't you jump up and find out? Right. Yeah. And so what, what I'm curious about is it, have you personally, or have you, uh, you know, dealt with this with your clients and then as the coach doing the programming, how can you program for athletes to maybe realize their potential a little bit better? Maybe it's pushing their, their limits a little bit more. What does all that kind of look like? Uh, I'll let you kind of just take it from there. We can see where it goes. Yeah, I think so. First off, I, I think this is something that I've had to address recently, you know, going through the open with athletes, because what, what happens is you, you go through training most of the year and most of the year training is supposed to be that sub sub red line type training. Cause you're trying to build capacity. And every time you spill over your red line, if you know, if you want to call it that or blow up, mm-hmm. you know, you could potentially be limiting the, the, you know, the, the ability to build capacity because then you can't do another interval limits your volume. Once you've blown up anything you do afterward, the quality is so low, the speed is so low that it's like non-productive volume. Exactly. Right. And there, most of the year, most of the year for most athletes, you want to get as much productive, productive volume in as possible. So you don't want to blow up. You want to ride right under that red line. However, when it comes to competition prep, to sport specific prep to this time of year, you know, the open or, you know, the, the five weeks of, of the open into quarterfinals, right? So that's a five week span. Really, your focus should be on intensity and pushing the limits and finding where the edge is and how far you can push it. Because now you're no longer trying to maximize productive volume. You're trying to maximize your intensity. You're trying to maximize your ability to express your potential in a CrossFit setting. And the only way to do that is through intensity. So I had to have this conversation. It's funny with two different young athletes, but two other young athletes, both both that I coached, both of which that were uh, CrossFit Games teen athletes. And they were going through the open and they're having good performances because they're really talented athletes. But in my opinion, I think both of them were maybe underperforming for their potential. And I just said before the last workout for the last week, I was like, you guys, go like this is the time to go. Like, yes, I recognize the open is not quarterfinals. It's not the things that's going to hold you back from qualifying for the next stage, but you're not pushing yourself to the point that you're finding the edge. You're not learning from these and you're not growing from these. You're getting done and feeling safe and comfortable. And that's not going to help you in quarterfinals because you're not at the level that you can feel safe and comfortable in quarterfinals and move on to semifinals. You're not there yet. Honestly, they're just too young. Like they're, they're like 19 and 20, like you're just not there yet that you can compete with the big boys and the big girls in the sport yet. Uh, and, and feel safe and not wrecked. Like there are people who are very capable of doing that. I train with Travis, I train with Noah. Those guys are capable of going through quarters and, and not having to do that, but they have to do what I'm talking about before semifinals but they know it. Like they know that they have to do this, but it was interesting talking to these younger athletes because they are like, man, I never thought about it like that, that you have to go out and you have to punch the workout from the start and, and end on the floor and, and ride that line of failure. And I think it does come down to, I think there's a big mindset component. Uh, Obviously if, if you're interviewing me, I'm going to be talking about mindset. That's why we get along. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be talking about mindset because I think there's a couple of things. The, the narrative that's going through your head in those workouts to me is 
almost like a negative narrative, right? Don't go too hard. Don't do too big of a set. Don't do two more reps because you might blow up. It's all framed in the negative instead of telling yourself what to do, right? So framing it in the positive would be, let's try two more or let's see how far we can go. Let's see how big we can take this. Let's see how deep we can get into this workout. And just framing it as an experiment, that's kind of how I think about it, right? It's like one of the things that I've learned over the last probably three or four years of my career is that if I go into a workout in this kind of exploratory mindset of let's see how far we can push it versus don't blow up so that you can get the best performance score. And like, it's weird. It takes some of the pressure off of you because, hey, I was just trying to figure out how fast I could go or how far I could go. Like, I definitely carried that into week two this year, the deadlift bar facing burpee. And I finished it by one second. Actually, I finished by like a tenth of a second. But uh, uh, I took that mindset into this workout and I was like, let's see if we can finish this workout. That's it. Let's just see if we can finish this workout and make it happen. And that was the deepest I've dug in a workout. Actually, it was the deepest I've dug in a workout since Wadapalooza. The other thing that happens is when you're in live competition, that just gets pulled out of you by competing. But when you're competing solo, I really think your best bet is to kind of approach it from this exploratory mindset. How fast can we go? How far can we push it? And I've watched guys like Jake Berman, who I coach, who finished, you know, he had a workout that he just finished, I think, fourth in the world or fifth in the world for 22.3. That was his mindset. I want to see how fast I can go. I want to see if I can set a world record. I want to see if I can, you know, turn in the top time in the world. And, you know, the, the results speak for themselves. That was a very exploratory mindset. It wasn't necessarily, it was exploratory, maybe a little performance oriented, but very exploratory. How fast can humans do this is kind of where his, his mindset is. And then the other thing I think is that there's um, you know, risk tolerance, right? Your risk tolerance is lower than Jake's. Having coached both of you for some time now, Someone like Jake, his risk tolerance just in general in life is higher. And so he's willing to get closer to failure on a more regular basis. And by getting closer to failure on a more regular basis, he, he gets a little more out of his training. But by also riding that line, you open yourself up for risk of injury, for risk of overtraining, for risk of you know, respiratory you know, illnesses with some of the immune suppression from going too hard too often. And so there's two sides to the coin. You know, um, I think that's one of the things you mentioned, Rich. That's one of the things I think Rich is so good at is he has figured out how to regulate himself in that regard. Um, you know, he, he found like he was, he was not risk averse, but he also found that if he took too many risks in training that, you know, his, his joint health and, and health and energy and everything wasn't sufficient to compete. So, wow, that was a lot of stuff that we just threw out there. But It's fantastic, man. I love it. Um, as a coach. How can you shape your program design for somebody who struggles with this? What does that look like? Gosh. Uh, okay. So first off, I think even more important than program design is that conversation that, okay, now's the time to shift to intensity. Now's the time to shift to finding where the limits are and not protecting yourself and giving them permission, giving your athletes permission to fail. Now, if you're in the exploratory mindset, there's no such thing as failure because it was always just an experiment. I was just trying to see how fast I could go or if I could go out, you know, unbroken sets and see how long I could hold on. I was just trying to see. 
that's it, right? I think if you have that exploratory mindset, you're never going to fail. And I think as a coach, maybe what you need to do is explain to people like, all right, this part of the season, this competition prep, it's about finding where your limits are. And the only way to find them is to go out hot and burn up. And yeah, you might fail. You know, you, you might not finish the interval under the cap by the end, or you might get a worse performance, but at least you know that and you can carry that into competition where the performance really matters. Because in training or in the open, if you're a, a shoe in quarterfinals athlete, the performance in the end doesn't matter that much, right? We're trying to get as much out of it as we can. So I think bringing that context to say, hey, this last five weeks, and it really is something like that. It's like the last four or five weeks of someone's season where they really need to just take the intensity and ratchet it up. Maybe it's eight weeks. I don't know. You know, I've, I've done this long enough that to, to know that like, there's no timeframes we can really put on it. But I know that if someone spends five weeks really pushing the limits, they can, you know, they can get a lot out of it. I think the other thing is from a program design standpoint, it means you got to taper back the volume, right? So instead of trying to get two training pieces or three training pieces in a session, you need to set them up for success, which means one solid training set, training piece per session with an extensive warm up and an extensive cool down and focus on recovery uh, between it. Now, you were talking about that you liked to take 20 seconds of rest between your sets of muscle ups. There's an easy program design piece that you can, you can enter here. And that's just like, if you know it's 20 seconds, all right, DJ, now you get 15 seconds rest on a 15 second clock or, or something like that. You can do that. The problem that I've found with that is that that's not something I would use in this stage of the season. Right. Because in this stage of the season, I want you to try five seconds and see what happens or be, I'll be unaware of the clock and see what happens in this stage of the season. I think that's more off-season work where we're just trying to get you comfortable with shorter rests. And we can, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in that which we measure, we can improve. Mm -hmm. And so if we're measuring those rest, those rest intervals, we can decrease those rest sizes and increase that density so that your body is adapting to those things. But that's not what we're trying to do in the last five weeks of the season. We're not trying to get a lot of body adaptations. We're trying to get you to understand how to operate that engine that we built in the off season. Seems like pacing this is a very generic statement, but pacing is really a skill, isn't it? Mm. Yes. Well, I mean, we were just talking about Jake Berman, right? I mean, why is he so good at open style CrossFit? Cause he's a pacing master. Uh, I am a terrible pacer, you know, but I, I think that that has helped me in some workouts, you know, the really short, like sub two minute workouts that never, ever show up. Sure. Uh, <laughs> that only show up in live events, which is why right. I tend to do better when those things show up, you know, when they show up in live events. Um, but yeah, I think, I, I think pacing is a skill that has to be learned and it has to be refined. And knowing how to pace for a 20 minute workout is vastly different than knowing how to pace for this one, which could have been four and a half minutes to 12 minutes. Right. And I think that, there are, there are ways to pace. Every individual is going to have a different way to pace. Um, you know, if, if it's a long workout for me, I can't ride the red line edge the whole time. I've got to stay well under it and then have a strong finishing kick. Like it's the only way that I can be successful in a, in a 20 minute workout, but you compare that to someone like uh, Noah and I've watched Noah just ride the red line for 20 minutes without any issue and still have a finishing kick. So like, Pacing is different for everybody. Um, 
and I don't, I wouldn't say like, oh, elite athlete should pace this way. And, you know, quarterfinals, top 500 athletes should pace this way because each individual's physiology is going to solve the puzzle differently. So take risks, but also be uh, what I would think that you'd add is be aware of what you're doing. Have some intention, right? Don't just you know yeah. go out hot to go out hot. Have a reason of this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And don't go out hot all the time, all year. That's a good way to burn yourself up real fast, right? Like you want to, you want to guarantee that you don't get fitter, just go out hot. And then, like I said, you, there's a part of the year that you need volume. Like there's people that are so volume obsessed in the sport, right? You look at, at group programs and things like that. And like, people just want volume. They're like so volume hungry and volume does get you fitter. It does. Absolutely. Especially quality volume where, you know, you're, you're still getting something out of, you know, every set and rep. However, volume is not what prepares you to compete. Intensity is what prepares you to compete. And I've seen people who do, you know, their three sessions per day, tons of work and all this stuff, and they go and compete and they just get smashed by people who do one good focused session every day. And it, it just, it goes to show you that like, there is a value to both intensity and there's a value to uh, to volume. And you need to know when to use each of those tools. And if you use intensity in the off season, you're probably causing yourself self an issue. And if you use volume in your competition prep mm-hmm. phase, you're probably causing yourself issues like diminishing returns for both of those things. Cool. I want to turn the page a little bit last 20 minutes here and talk about overcoming injuries in CrossFit and how we navigate this. And this is a topic that I think needs to be talked about a little bit more often. I think with social media specifically, there's not a lot of talk about this because you're getting everybody's highlight reels. Even the people that are professional athletes, they're not showing you, I got nicks and pains. I got to modify this. That's just not sexy or glamorous. So I'd like to spend some time kind of opening that up and talking about navigating injuries with CrossFit. So t- just let's just set the table first of where does your mind go first, Kyle, when you hear about the best athletes or the best people, clients, anybody that can navigate injuries really well? What are some things you've noticed over the years? So I think the very first thing I ever noticed was someone who was good at navigating injury. I was working with a master's athlete and she had, um, she had a shoulder issue that we had to work around. And when that happened, she immediately just focused on the things that she could do and didn't worry about, you know, keeping pull-ups and uh, and muscle ups and rope climbs and handstand walks, the things that she couldn't do. She just kind of forgot about those for the time being. She's like, until my PT is done and my shoulder's healthy, let's focus on training my engine and let's focus on training my lower body and making sure that my lower body stays healthy. And I was like, damn, good perspective. You know, like now I'm as your coach, I'm going to follow your lead. This was a solid like nine, 10 years ago now. Um, but that's been the theme all along is the athletes who don't let an injury stop them, right? They keep moving forward regardless of the injury. And they might, be, they might not be moving forward in all areas of fitness, but they also recognize that CrossFit is you know, so diverse that there are things that it can always be getting better at. The exceptions to this are like, okay, you have a, a disc injury, right? You're pretty limited at that point, but you can still continue to work on upper and lower body, uh, you know, muscular endurance. You can focus in on your rehab. What can you do? Well, you can improve the mobility in your thoracic spine. You can improve the mobility in your hips. You can start to use blood flow restriction training to improve local tissue endurance in your legs and your arms. 
you can buy a breath trainer and continue to build your respiratory capacity. You could be using a sauna consistently to build blood volume. Like there are things that you can be doing. They just may not be the like sexy CrossFit snatches and, and stuff that people love to do, but that's what people who are successful in navigating injuries do. They find things that can continue to move them forward and they start doing those and they stay focused on those rather than agonizing over what they can't do. And with that said, anytime I've gone through an injury or watched someone go through a pretty serious injury, there's almost like a grieving process. You know, mm. first they're pissed yeah. that, that the injury happened. Then they're, you know, sad and they have their denial. And then they start to, to resolve it by coming up with a plan. And what I've always found is that the faster I can get someone to start creating a plan to move forward, the faster they can start to navigate the injury. And the plan doesn't have to be complex. It might just be like, all right, first thing we're going to do is we're going to rest it. Second thing we're going to do is we're going to start to move it. Third thing, you're going to go get assessed, right? You need to have a professional take a look at this to make sure that there's nothing structural going on. The next step after that, we're going to start conditioning, right? It was a shoulder injury. We're going to start conditioning your legs. We're going to start really hammering the bike and sleds. And we're going to work on walking lunges and and things like that. We're going to take advantage of the fact that you're weak with pistols. So we're going to spend a ton of time improving your pistol technique and mechanics and work around the shoulder. And during that time, you're going to focus on your PT. There's your plan. Until we get the green light from the PT, that's what your plan is. It doesn't deviate. That's our focus. Let's go. As CrossFitters, I think a lot of us are type A and we're very much, I follow the program design. I do what my coach does. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just talking about myself, but I think a lot of people in my, a lot of people in my circle. I might argue about whether or not I follow the program design. That would be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think most people, they like to be told what to do. That's why they go to a CrossFit gym, go to a CrossFit class. And they like to kind of follow that process. And the moment an injury happens, there's a lot of, um, uh, grayness on clarity. They're like, I don't know what to do. And, and I'm kind of have anxiety now because I don't know what I should go do when I walk into the gym the next day. So giving a plan, whether it's your plan is a rest day. It's like, okay, coach, you know, they told me th- that this is the, the plan today. I can follow something or, Hey, you're going to go to this clinic. It's just following direction and continuing that pattern, whether it's in the gym, outside the gym, whether it's on true, whatever it's, whatever platform you're following. I think having some sort of plan can just bring people's anxiety down. I totally agree with that. What you're talking about, so we're, we're talking about how do people navigate injury well. One of the top ones is just to, to manage anxiety, like you said. And that's why I think the, the plan comes in, but also getting people just to like slow down and breathe, right? Hey, maybe part of your plan is now it's time for you to start adding some meditation in, sure. right? You need to be doing some mindful, mindfulness work or work on relaxation breathing because ob- a lot of, I feel like a lot of back tweaks not, I'm not talking about disc injuries, but I'm talking about tweaks happen because people just are so ramped up. It's funny how many times I have witnessed someone get a back tweak two to five days before their focus competition, before Wadapalooza or before semifinals or before regionals or before a sanctional or before the online games. I mean, Noah, he, he posted this up on his story. I know he doesn't mind me talking about, he was in the fucking hospital yeah, like four days before the online games where he took third place, right? That right there, if you can be in the hospital and then you can be doing damn Diane, it was definitely a, a tension. A, I would say it was related to your psychology. Sorry, mm-hmm. Noah, I don't mean to throw you under the bus on that, but <laughs> it was definitely related to your tension. That's for sure. And just learning to, to spend some time to relax is so helpful. What's the difference between soreness 
a tweak or strain and an injury? Oh, good question, man. That, that might be out of my scope of my scope of practice. Right. So, I mean, I think doms is definitely something different than an injury, right? But it can sure as hell feel like an injury. Like I've had rotator cuff doms that felt like I tore rotator cuffs. Uh, it just happened to me two weeks ago. I was playing with the kids and doing flips on the trampoline and I was throwing hard. And dude, the next day, my rotator cuff, my, my right shoulder was so sore that I was- It always happens outside of the gym, doesn't it? hundred <laughs> percent. I pulled my hamstring doing cartwheels. Like, all, yes, it always happens outside the gym. Uh, but it literally felt like I tore my rotator cuff. And I was like, well, might be done with the open because I did a flip on the trampoline. Um, but that was just, what it really was. It was just severe doms, right? And, and it can feel like an injury, but I guess in some senses, it's not an injury. It might be micro injury, however you want to, it's like micro tissue injury. Um, I think tweaks a lot of times for people are like, they're, they're the nervous system turning on a ton of tension. Right. I don't know if you would call it. I don't know the physiology of this well enough to speak to it. But what I've noticed is that people can go and if, if you can get some ART done, some needling done or um, some soft tissue manipulation work done and that's gone. Well, was that an injury? Probably not. That's a tweak. Right. That's what we would. That's how I would think of a tweak. If it's something that you, you can get needled out, it probably wasn't an injury per se. And then to me, an injury is something that's like a structural uh, a structural deficit, like a, a, a disc herniation. Like I know, um, I'm, I coach some PTs. I work with Kyle Haddo's PT and like, there's a lot of, they, they have a lot of very strong opinions on disc herniations and imaging and things like that. And I'm not going to speak to that. Um, but I would consider something like a disc herniation an injury or, um, when I tore my hamstring, like there was, you could feel the divot, right? Like there's a structural defect, uh, in the hamstring that's an injury or an ACL tear. That's an injury or meniscus tear. I've torn my meniscus before I had to have that, uh, you know, surgically cleaned up like that's an injury. But I think there's definitely a difference between all of those things and recognizing that tweaks are for sure. You are for sure going to have tweaks if you're trying to compete at a high level in CrossFit and you're for sure going to have DOMS. <laughs> you're for sure going to have soreness if you compete in, in CrossFit. And we would like to minimize injury. I don't know if that's necessarily possible, but we would like to minimize injury um, because the reality is if you're pushing your body to its limits, like tissues are going to, things are going to happen. And I can tell you as a master's athlete, man, we are definitely more susceptible to like musculoskeletal injuries. You know, those, those strains where a couple of fibers decide they don't want to hang on to the tendon anymore. Like, I've had a handful of those just as a, a master's athlete, as I've gotten older, that would not have happened when I was 30. Mm -hmm. Like my body is definitely not as resilient as much as I would like to pretend like I'm just as resilient and fast and strong and enduring as I was like those things happen more frequently as, as you get older. What I hope doesn't happen is that injuries don't become more common. Right. Something that is a reoccurring theme, I think that is helpful for people going through injuries is the term acceptance. And I remember when I was early in my career working with Kyle Spears and I had my first kind of back tweak and something he said to me was, you know, this is a part of the sport. This isn't just like everybody has these. And that I remember that mindset shift and that kind of moment in my career was like, 
gosh, you're right. You know, everybody goes through these. I'm not the only one. There's not something wrong with me. And then it turns into like, you know, this woe is me into like, okay, what can I do? But there's an, and that's kind of part of that grieving process. Like you said, is they're just accepting like, dude, you are involved in a sport that is prone for injury. You just need to accept that. And if you don't accept that now, pre-injury, you're probably gonna have a hard time accepting it after. I don't know if I would say that this sport is prone to injury any more so than any other competitive sure, sport. Sure, I would agree. Yeah. If you look at injury data, yes. Um, maybe my old sport, maybe swimming is a little a little lower. Um, but I guess it would depend on on stroke, right? So like breaststrokers have are prone to knee injuries, butterflies prone to shoulder injuries, blah, 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 blah. Um, but I don't think CrossFit per se is like it's it's less injury prone than competitive gymnastics or competitive right, or soccer or uh, football or you know what I mean? So it's like way lo- the, the injury incidence is lower, but I do think this sport is very prone to pain. This is a pain sport. And that is for damn sure. You're going to experience all types of pain that are available to the human experience, right? You're going to have muscular pain, the burning sensation, whatever that, whatever causes that hydrogen ions, uh, free, free nerve endings, getting touching co- uh, carbon dioxide, who knows what it is, right? We can tell ourselves all the stories, but you're going to experience that type of pain. You're going to experience joint pain, which is a nasty type of pain that we don't like, but you're going to experience it in this sport, right? Like all types of nociception available to the human experience are involved in this sport. And part of this sport is just being able to maybe not even deal with it is the right word to embrace the correct types of pain and learn to recognize the wrong types of pain, Mm. the types of pain that should be avoided, right? Joint pain, injury pain, those types of things. And I think if you accept, as you said, if you accept that this is a painful sport and that part of your job is to recognize good pain from bad pain, is there good pain, bad pain? Uh, I don't necessarily want to put the labels on it, but like recognize pain that you should avoid and pain that you should embrace, uh, I think is part of being in this sport. And I promise that I am not the person who should be like, oh man, everyone should, should embrace pain because I am definitely not the toughest athlete on the face of the planet. I am far from that one. I'm as soft as they get. (laughs) (laughs) So would you agree Kyle though, that pain doesn't always mean you're injured? No, definitely not. There are, when you are a novice athlete, pain is pain. Mm-hmm. When you are a 10-year veteran in the sport, or at this point, I mean, I've been competing. I can, I can say I've been competing at a high level. I qualified for nationals for the first time when I was 17. So, oh my God, 20 years dating myself, 20 years at um, you know, like a, a, a top whatever level in the world. Um, I have learned that there are lots of different kinds of pain and there are some kinds of pain that I need to deal with on a daily basis. There are some kinds of pains that I'm going to deal with on a monthly basis that I don't like, but will still have to deal with. And there are types of pain that I recognize that when I feel it, I need to stop. And they're not all the same. That brings me to a quote I heard earlier and it said that at some point in your career, the game becomes much more about staying in it and less about winning it. I think there's a moment whether, you know, maybe speaking to people that maybe aren't in the competitive realm, maybe the GPP people that come to class, there's that moment that you need to decide, 
Are you going to try to win this thing every single day? Or do you just want to be here for a long time? And that's that long-term approach. I think once you start, and again, this is not for the competitor. This is maybe for the GPP type person, general, you know, the fitness yeah. enthusiast. There needs to be a mindset shift of I'm here long-term. Is this worth it? What can you I know, do? For competitors, there's even the same thing to be said, because I think what competitors do, at least good long-term competitors, people that have long careers, is they wave in and out of those two mindsets, right? So it's like when they're peaking and they're, you know, they're, they're young and they're doing their first peak in their career, like they're in the, I'm in this to win it. And then they cycle back to like, and I kind of just want to be able to do this, you know, in 10 years. So I should dial it back a little bit, but then something happens and, and, you know, there's a catalyst and they start to ramp themselves back up. Like maybe I can win. Maybe I can do this. And like, they need to go back up that mountain and then they come back down. And I think there never has to be one, like all one or all the other. I think you can really just kind of be, um, you can, you can shift yourself between those two. I've done that. Like that's, I think part of the reason that I'm, I have had some, some longevity, uh, in the sport is that I had a period of time where I was actively attacking. And then I had a period of time where I was like, man, I need to work on my body a little bit and, and make this a little more sustainable. Cause like, I do want to compete when I'm 35. And then when I hit 35, I was like, now it's time to start mm -hmm. ramping it back up. I think there's something to that. Cool. I want to just close down talking about prehab and rehab. So what are your kind of, let's go rehab first. Do you have okay. some go, do you have some go-to ways? Um, there's a ton of different therapies out there and there's more, you know, every single year. Do you have some that, and again, it's probably going to depend on the person, um, financial situation and the injury, but do you have some that you really like to lean on as far as rehab goes? Yes. So first off, well, okay. Rehab. So after an injury. Yeah. I would say I use blood flow restriction training almost exclusively, not exclusively, but extensively in my own personal rehab anytime I've had an injury, but I don't use it under the impression that it's going to heal my injury. I use it to maintain muscle mass and maintain tissue strength and maintain endurance. So I had a, after Wadapalooza, um, I had this really nasty lateral knee pain and my knee swelled up, had all this fluid in my capsule. And it was just like, it, I couldn't use my, my right leg hardly at all. And what would have happened in the past before I had understood and, and had, you know, acclimated myself to blood flow restriction training is that leg would have shrunk. I would have lost muscle mass. I would have lost strength, but instead I knew to use blood flow restriction training, IPC protocols, ischemic preconditioning protocols to maintain the muscle mass use that mixed with e-stem like a complex unit and kept all the muscle mass. So once the knee injury had recovered, I did my rehab that I got from Kyle Habdo on site. I stuck to that, got some soft tissue work done and it took about five weeks. But once it resolved, this leg was still strong. The, you know, the nerves hadn't started to de-innervate or anything like that. And it was ready to go. And I was able to get right back into squatting and training. So I, I'm not a PT, so I can't really prescribe rehab exercises, but I'm a strength and conditioning coach. And so I can focus on maintaining strength and conditioning of a tissue. And that's what I use the, the blood flow restriction training for. Um, I think that that tool is something that right now it's like, you know, just people are like just a subsurface aware of it. But I think in 10 years, it's going to be something where like you walk in the gym and like it's everywhere. Not necessarily from a training perspective, but like from a performance perspective. 
And you're already starting to see that. You know, I've, I have some friends that, that work in professional sports and BFR is all over their, their training floor. And it, it's a short time before it's all over the CrossFit performance training floors as well. Very cool. Talk about prehab. What are some ways, and again, very generic question. I apologize for that, but it's, 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 it's something that needs to get out is what, what, what sort of prehab movement exercises, not mindset things could people start to take into, you know, you're not going to eliminate it, but how can we decrease our chance of injury? Yeah. This is something I think I can speak to more than, than the rehab side. Um, I think the way that I tend to think about prehab is I look at the sport I look at CrossFit and I say, what movements are we not doing? Well, we don't do a lot of rotational work. Um, we don't do a lot of open chain, lower body exercises. So open chain, meaning like leg extension, leg curl type movements. Um, we do a lot of closed chain where you're, you know, you're planted on the floor. Um, we don't do a lot of like hip abduction, hip adduction. So adductor and, and isolated glute work. Um, if you look at the shoulder, like, the shoulder does a lot of pressing and it does a lot of like hanging, but it doesn't do a lot of external rotation. Um, the spine, it does a lot of flexion and extension and toes to bar and GHD sit-ups. And it has to get real stiff for things like deadlifts and catching cleans. But like the T-spine doesn't rotate much unless you're doing real high level movements, like one arm dumbbell overhead squats or things like that. So like, I look at that and say, these are the things that we don't do a lot of. And I make sure that we include those things in prehab programs. And that might be including some rotation, anti-rotation work for the spine, including some basic stuff like, you know, seated leg extensions, if, especially if someone has, you know, knee injury or, you know, knee issues, chronic knee issues, um, you know, making sure that we include things like Copenhagen's, which are obviously something that have been a staple in your program, um, you know, dealing with, with glutes. I have almost all my athletes do barbell hip thrust once a week. Um, just because, you know, maintaining hip extension, there's another one I've, I've assessed, you know, hundreds and hundreds of CrossFitters, uh, and in general, everybody lacks hip, true hip extension. And it's like, well, let's just include one exercise a week to make sure that we, what do you, what do you mean by that? Um, the ability to actually extend the hip and you can really see it when people are running where they maintain this like check marked body position, mm -hmm. right? Um, and they, they never actually get into, to hip extension on the, when the leg swings back behind them. Um, it's really only a major issue in running. And then you can see it in Olympic lifts when people actually hit, you know, their triple extension. Uh, that's another place you can see it. And then you can see it in split jerks where people, um, their back leg, because they lack that extension, they end up compensating, have this huge curve in their, their lumbar spine and they can't get stacked at all. And so they're super limited overhead because of their spine. So is it a postural thing? <laughs> it's all related. So it's not like one thing or the other. Okay. It's, like, it's like their lack of hip extension causes postural issues in a split jerk. Right. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's really what, I, I mean, you could make, you could break it down and, and look super micro and be like, all right, most CrossFitters lack, you know, ankle plantar flexion, dorsiflexion. They lack hip internal rotation, hip external rotate. Like you can break it down like that, but I like to look more macro. What are the things that don't get touched? Uh, let's make sure we touch them. What are the top two areas that you think competitive CrossFitters, top two areas in the body you see the most injuries in? Um, the back. But I've made a ton of headway with McGill's big three. You've had uh, Stu McGill on, on the podcast, right? Not Stu, but I've had the Squat University, Aaron Horshagon, and we talked a lot about a lot of stuff. He loves uh, McGill. So um, 
I've had a ton of success over the last like four years integrating more McGill Big Three work. Um, the other thing I found is the breath belt. Um, I started using it myself because it just made intuitive sense to me, right? So like most people wear the stiff, rigid belt that is essentially creating stability for them. And I had this idea. It turns out I wasn't the first person to have this idea, but I was like, if you use an elastic belt, then what you would do is you would get, you get two things, right? You're not creating the stiffness for the person. The person has to create the stiffness against that elastic resistance. And then we also know that there's a stretch reflex, right? So if you stretch a muscle, the muscle, we have this reflex where we press out against it. So you put elastic around the waist and you're going to get the stretch reflex and this tactile cue to brace against it. I was like, I'm going to invent this belt, this elastic belt. And then I went into Google and I was like, oh, damn, it already exists. <laughs> uh, it already exists. It's called the breath belt. So I got one of those. I, I think I got it in 2018 because um, I'd had some, some back issues before. And man, I have very iron core now from, from using that. I use it for almost all my lifting. Um, but I think those two things have really helped with, with back injuries. And then I think the other most common one are knees just sore knees all the time. And I know you've had knees over toes guy mm -hmm. on the podcast and, um, his, his stuff has been fantastic. Um, I do reverse sled drags as soon as the weather is nice enough. For me. I've got, I found a tire and built myself a tire sled and I drag it out there and do my reverse drags. I do my Poliquin step-ups, my Patrick step-ups, my A to G split squats. I keep Nordics in the program because there's, you know, an open chain, <clears throat> hamstring exercise. So I, I've been, you know, on top of all that stuff. And I think that is another one that has really helped quite a bit. If you're listening to this, go check out the podcast that DJ did with knees over toes. <laughs> he's awesome. Man. He's, got some, he's got some really good stuff out. And so what I'm noticing is that a lot of the stuff Kyle seems to be activation, um, movement oriented is that where, where does, where does stretching fit in when it comes to eliminating or decreasing injury potential? Hmm. I'm not sure that stretching is necessarily something that decreases injury potential. I think the, the research, a lot of research would probably bear that out. Now, that's a blanket statement, and I hate blanket statements. Um, there are definitely people, myself included, who probably would benefit from some consistent stretching. There are certain things that I stretch on a consistent basis. I do a couch stretch because my hip flexors and my quads are just, they're always tight. And then I have ridiculously tight hamstrings. So I've incorporated things from the knees over toes guy, like the elephant walk stretch. Mm -hmm. um, I do so like a Jefferson-ish curl variation where I'm doing some like loaded hamstring stretching. Um, but it's to me, again, it's more like strength training than stretching. Like I'm not doing, you know, I'm not propping a leg up and, and stretching it for a long time. And I think I prescribe mobility work, but I prescribe it typically as like a nervous system calming tool. So like it's part of a cool down. And I have some people who do ROMWAD separately. And oh, I, I don't know if I necessarily have seen that those people tend to be injured less than, than others. In fact, I think it might be the opposite of that, where the people who just do mobility when I prescribe like, hey, you're going to do a 10 minute easy bike, and then you're going to do 20 minutes of nose breathing mobility. Those people do tend to have lower injury rates. And I think that's because they're actually taking some time to like ramp down their nervous system and actually calm down after their training sessions. Yeah. I mean, I think the same thing could be said if like you just lied on your back, propped your feet up and did 10 minutes of relaxation breathing and just tried to actively relax all the muscles. Stretching for CrossFitters, as you call this type A, P 
people means that we're actively doing something and it keeps us a little more engaged, but it gets that relaxation, right? When you put the muscle under tension with a stretch, when you release it, the muscle has a reflexive relaxation phase. And so that's really, I think what you're getting out of that. Um, but you could do the same thing with foam rolling, you know, like foam rolling literature is very clear. It doesn't decrease injury uh, risk. It doesn't, it doesn't change injury risk at all, but it sure does make you feel pretty relaxed when you're done. Yeah. Very cool. As we close down here, last piece of advice for somebody that's going through an injury right now, what would you tell them? Uh, can I tell them multiple things? Absolutely. <laughs> One, uh, focus on what you can do, right? Especially if you're a CrossFitter. Um, there's so much, so much stuff under the sun that you could be doing. I think most people have neglected building um, what the sport would collectively refer to as aerobic capacity. I'm not sure that that's what I would call it, but that's what everyone would generally know it as. Um, spend some time building some aerobic capacity, even just basic aerobic capacity. When's the last time you went, you know, you went at a moderate effort for an hour? You haven't done that in a while? Well, probably should do that, right? Like your heart will appreciate that in, in 20 years. Um, I think that's one. Uh, the other one is make sure it, if you feel like you need medical, a medical professional, go seek out a medical professional. Sometimes these things are hard to navigate on your own, especially if you don't know what you're doing. I think that's a big one. And then the other thing is don't rely on other people to solve your problem, right? Mm -hmm. So I've been, when I had my first knee injury, I saw five different PTs, three different sports medicine people, two different chiropractors. Like I was trying to get someone to help me, right? I was like, somebody help me. My knee hurts all the time. And you know, I, there's nothing I can do about it. It wasn't until I started to take some ownership to do, you know, I, I, I knew my hips were tight and I probably needed to do some mobility work because my hips were super tight. Like I needed to address that. Like I didn't have very good ankle dorsiflexion. I needed to address that. I didn't have full knee flexion range of motion. I needed to address that. And it was when I finally took ownership for those things and started doing that on a daily basis that my knee pain resolved itself. And it was like, huh, this is the thing, the missing piece for most people that are injured is like, don't rely on other people to do it for you. Like even me as a programmer, like with, with your shoulder, right? Let's think, let's think about your shoulder for a second. Like I could program all the shoulder movement stuff in the world, but these tools aren't the things that are going to fix it. Like it's, it's you actively, you know, making adjustments, which you're, you're doing a good job making adjustments. Like, Hey man, this is hurting my shoulder in training. So I'm not going to do this today. I'm going to do this instead. Um, and then actively going out and finding the things that seem to help you, right? Massage seems to help it. Well, keep going and doing that. But part of that is the trial and error of, of, you know, navigating injury, like figuring out the things that help you and then doing them. Love it. What a great place to end. Kyle, what are you working on right now that you'd like uh, the listeners to know? Well, so we have the, the TTT classroom, the training think tank classroom, which is our kind of educational platform. And we've been making some adjustments to the way that we're creating content in there that I think will be more impactful for coaches, right? We're really trying to make content that will, will make it so that people who are already CrossFit coaches that want to improve their ability to uh, watch other people move and then break those movements down or give some, like watch a burpee and be like, you should make these adjustments to make your burpee more efficient. 
watch someone do a rope climb and be like, all right, here's a couple ways that you can improve your rope climb clamp. We want to be able to help people in that regard, the people that are class coaches. And then we also are working quite a bit more on the program design side. All right. So take that rope climb as well, right? All right. You watch someone do the rope climb, you make the technical adjustments, but now you recognize like they've got to build some upper body strength. How do we help you build upper body strength? Well, here's some program examples. Here's some elements that you think that we think you should include. Here's a six-week program for a, you know, a mid-level CrossFitter who needs to build upper body strength for. So we're starting to include more of that stuff in the classroom. Because up to this point, a lot of what we've had has been, you know, theoretical, like mm-hmm. program design theory, uh, injury assessment theory, right? And now we're starting to, to dig into the more practical pieces, which I think people will really like. That's what's upcoming in the classroom. Um, that's a big thing. The other thing, man, you know, we've got the TTT, the compete program, which is we've got the elite division. We've got um, our RX, our intermediate, our, our master's division. And that's been growing leaps and bounds. And I honestly, I can honestly say, not, you know, not biased, <laughs> cover up my TTT logos. You can honestly, honestly say it's, it's, the, the most well put together thought out program that exists in the CrossFit space group program that exists in the CrossFit space right now. Um, it takes into account the data, the, the, you know, psychological side, the, the, you know, intangible elements of CrossFit and it's engaging, right? I mean, I think it's a, it's a program that actually will help people progress. It's periodized so that, you know, it actually flows with the season and very affordable. It is very affordable as well. <laughs> Hiring an individual coach, which is much less affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are the two big things that we've got going on right now. And I think I'm really excited about the classroom because that's the project that I'm most involved in. Um, but what the compete team is doing is just badass, to be cool. honest. Very cool. Awesome. Guys, go check that out. I'm a testament. Obviously, I'm under the training think tank umbrella. So I'm, you know, I love everything that they're doing. The classroom's phenomenal as well. So go and check that out. Kyle, this is fun, man. Thank you for jumping on the show again and, and good luck to you this year. I appreciate it. DJ, thank you for having me, man. Awesome. Guys, we'll see you next week for another episode of the My Fit Podcast. Take care.